This is a Radio 191 FM podcast. It's been over 160 days since Russia invaded Ukraine. The war has seen thousands of lives, thousands of lives lost, created millions of refugees, and has caused severe economic stresses all over the world. Is there any possibility that the war will end in the near future? Well, that's a hard question to answer. There have been numerous recent developments in the conflict which make it hard to know whether peace is likely. Russia has ended its blockade of Ukrainian ports and is allowing Ukraine to export its grain, which is vital for millions in mostly developing countries. But by the same token, Russia has reiterated that it wants a change in the Ukrainian government, with the superpower also repeatedly threatening nuclear war if any NATO power gets too involved in the conflict. I spoke with global security expert Dr. Ruben Steff from the University of Waikato about the war's current state, the likelihood of peace, how the new waves of refugees are affecting Europe and and Ukraine's neighbours, and what Aotearoa's future involvement in the war should look like. Here it is. 150 days since Russia invaded Ukraine, and media coverage of the conflict has been slowly tapering off week by week. How would you characterise the current phase of the conflict? Well, you could say there's sort of been three phases. The first phase began immediately after Russia invaded Ukraine. Now, despite what everyone thought, the Russians faced a real fight. They, in fact, had to completely shift strategy after about a month because of logistical problems, the Ukrainians fighting with sort of quite effective tactics and Western-made military equipment and so on. So after about a month, the Russians had to retrench, and that then began the sort of second phase of the conflict when the Russians focused on the east, where they had short supply lines. They had a population that was somewhat sympathetic to Russia, and they already had a position there as they've been backing insurgents in eastern Ukraine since 2014. Now, the third phase began sort of a week or two ago, probably a couple of weeks ago, when the Ukrainians received high-mobility artillery rocket systems, or what are being called HIMARS. These are artillery systems that the Russians have no equivalent of. It allows Ukraine to fire behind Russian supply lines to damage ammunition dumps, to damage Russian logistics and so on. And that seems to really slow the next potential wave of Russian um, offence in eastern and southern Ukraine. So we're now into this third phase. Even the Russians admit the introduction of the HIMARS is a new phase in the war for them. So that's where we are. We're in this position of still essentially an artillery battle now in the east and south. It's very slow. It's very grinding. It doesn't look like any side in the coming weeks and months is going to make some kind of breakthrough. But I would say we need to be humble because none of us thought this war would really begin in the first place. Although Ukraine may have the military upper hand at the moment, that's not guaranteed to last. In terms of diplomacy... Do you think we could see a resolution to this conflict between the two parties without Ukraine ceding a portion of its territory to Russia? That's very hard to see in the short term or perhaps by the end of this year, partly because both sides are putting forward incompatible objectives. As you just alluded to, Ukraine, uh, the leader there, Zelensky, he has said that you know Ukraine want nothing less than the rest of their country, the eastern Ukraine, southern Ukraine, Crimea, which Russia annexed in 2014. On the Russian side, Vladimir Putin for years now has been speaking about Ukraine not being a truly independent country, a truly independent culture. Only a couple of days ago, uh, Russia's Minister of Foreign Affairs, Sergei Lavrov, said essentially that the objective still seems to be regime change in Ukraine, that they want to help Ukrainians throw off the current regime and that the the geography of 
Russia's claims have changed. It goes beyond just the Donbass, the eastern portion of Ukraine, which is somewhat sympathetic to Russia, to include parts of southern Ukraine, maybe parts of northern Ukraine. So the objectives that the Russians have set out are incompatible with the Ukrainian objectives. In terms of lives and investment, both sides have lost a lot now. Russia has lost something like 15 to 20,000 men. The Ukrainians claim it's something like 40,000 men. Ukraine has lost something like 10,000 men. It's going to be very difficult, given the rhetoric, given the, the cost in terms of blood and treasure, for either Zelensky or Putin to back down, at least in any quick manner. Maybe over the course of months of negotiations, they could slowly get to a position where both could find some resolution they could live with, but they need to sell it to their own people. Putin needs to get out, of, get out of this conflict with something he can show to the Russian people, that he can show to the Russian regime, that is a kind of win for Russia, or at least something that was worth fighting for. Zelensky's the same. He's going to have to show the Ukrainian people that the death and destruction that they've suffered has been worth it too. But by the end of this year, I just don't see it happening anytime soon. I, I would just say, though, this is a costly war for both sides. Both sides are not going to come out of it probably with what they what they fully want. So again, there's probably some middle ground there that both hopefully can find. There has been at least one piece of good news on the diplomacy front. A recent UN-brokered agreement between the two countries will put an end to Russian blockades in Ukrainian ports, such as the port of Odessa enabling Ukraine to export grain to countries which are currently facing food shortages. Although this has sparked hopes of more permanent negotiation and resolution, Russia did strike at the port of Odessa just last week. Do you think Russia will honor this agreement in good faith? And what will happen if Ukraine can't get its grain to the countries that need it most? Do you think Russia will act in good faith on this deal? And just how bad would global food shortages get? Will Russia commit and stick to the deal in good faith? For a start, I'd say the deal is somewhat odd on the Russian side. After all, when you're fighting your enemy, you don't want to be doing deals with them that help them economically. And as Ukraine now gets this week to the international market, that's going to be a new source of income for Ukraine. So it's a little bit odd in some respects on the Russian side. If you're looking at this as a pure competition, if you're setting aside the actual real human consequences of this wheat getting or not getting to the international market. Perhaps the incentive for Russia is that, you know, there's significant global reputational damage that can be done if Moscow does not allow this wheat to get to the international market. This could be the kernels for trust building between Russia and Ukraine to start progressively finding grounds for broader negotiations on other issues to end the war. So perhaps that's part of the calculation that both Russia and Ukraine eventually do want to get to a position of broader negotiations. And if you can do a deal like this initially and have it stick, you can then create the trust, the mechanisms going forward for new negotiations. You mentioned earlier the, the cost of human lives in this conflict. But aside from life being lost, there's also been a great deal of refugees and displacement. According to the BBC, around 5 million Ukrainians have left their homeland, seeking refuge in neighboring countries and passage to Western Europe. How has this mass migration affected countries in the immediate surrounding area? Yeah, sure. So I think the latest figures are something like 6.3 million have left for Western Europe and 9 million are displaced within Ukraine itself. And it's the largest refugee crisis in Europe since World War II. Um, so I gather that you know the cost is likely to be something like 30 billion to the European Union of having to take in and try and deal or provide housing and food and shelter for all these people. Bear in mind, you know, U European Union economy overall is 20 trillion. So they can absorb the kind of cost of this, but it does still feed into economic issues related to recovering from COVID, inflation and so on. 
Uh, Warsaw, the largest city in Poland, their population has increased by 15% since the start of the war. So there are real costs in terms on infrastructure, on pressure on housing, and so on. Now, I can speak perhaps a bit more anecdotally to my own experience, given I'm currently living in the Czech Republic, which is right in the center of Europe. To our north is Poland, to our west is Germany, to our south is Austria, to our east is Slovakia. Slovakia is a very small country, to Slovakia's east is Ukraine. Now, the Czech Republic has a population of 10 million people and has taken in something like 400, 500,000 Ukrainian refugees. So you have one new Ukrainian refugee for every 20 Czech citizens. And everywhere we go right now in the city we're living in, Bruno, it's it's uh, Czech Republic's second largest city. My wife says she hears Ukrainian everywhere. Uh, and we spend a lot of time in playgrounds because we have a child, and yet there's Ukrainians everywhere. Ukrainians are starting to, you know, they have some jobs. But the Czech Republic, despite recently having quite anti-immigrant politicians and political parties leading the country, has actually reacted very, very well. Uh, mayors were ordered to force landlords to give any free or any uh, unoccupied uh, apartments or houses to Ukrainian refugees. Many hotels simply allowed Ukrainian refugees to come in and use rooms and occupy rooms for free. Some Czechs have welcomed Ukrainians into their homes, Ukrainian families. And I, you know, again, walking around the city, I don't get a sense there's any intensity or aggressive feeling in the air. So I think people like the Czech, and I'm, I'm hoping people in Poland and other European nations that have taken on large amounts of refugees have welcomed them in with open arms. That's at least what we see here. That's the feeling we get. And again, these countries in Central Europe are generally pretty anti-immigrant, but they've responded to this refugee flow in a very different fashion than they you know, may were these people come from coming from different parts of the world. They, they, they see a sort of commonality with these people. And I think a kind of sense of solidarity, especially because the aggression is by Russia. All these countries during the Cold War were occupied, dominated by Russia. And this is a way perhaps for them to show Russia, hey, you know, you do these things and it produces all this destabilization, these refugee flows, and we're willing to welcome these people rather than um, oppose or you know, some, somewhat resist them. Now, bringing the conflict into a more local perspective, Aotearoa has donated several million dollars worth of non-lethal military aid and has even lent Ukraine uh, a Hercules for transport use. Do you think Aotearoa's response to the conflict so far has been adequate? And what should our future response look like? I, I personally think it's been very effective. You know, we're a small country, so anything we do, of course, is going to be pretty moderate in the scheme of things. But as you said, we've provided millions of dollars for non-military assistance. We've sent over intelligence personnel to help countries there assess intelligence um, and share it across NATO and the European Union and so on. We've sent a Hercules transport aircraft. We have sanctioned Russia, including individuals in Russia. And what's notable there is that we've used autonomous sanctions. Now, normally what New Zealand does is... We sanction according to United Nations sanctions. But in this case, because Russia is on the UN Security Council, any sanctions the UN tries to mandate, Russia just vetoes. So what we've done for the very first time ever is we have separate to the United Nations, we have imposed sanctions alongside, well, really the rest of the Western world. And that's that's a, a novel thing for New Zealand to do. What could we do going forward? I mean... I think New Zealand has done a lot of what we should be doing. Uh, Jacinda Ardern, our Prime Minister, recently was at the NATO summit 
in Europe, the first time a New Zealand Prime Minister has been welcomed there. And she, look, she spoke out against the Russian invasion. But she also said that, you know, we need to emphasise diplomacy here. Because, you know, to be frank, the Americans are not doing it. Some countries that we may want to be doing it to play a critical role in this are not doing it. So New Zealand has put itself forward by saying, look, we, we think irrespective of the, the war, of the geopolitical tensions, you know, someone kind of needs to be speaking out for diplomacy to resolve this. Someone needs to be putting these ideas out there. Diplomacy really needs to be uh, drawn upon. If, if it ends up failing, so be it. But it's better to try it than nothing. Thanks for listening to a Radio 191 FM podcast. There are heaps more at r1.co.nz.